Hello, I'm Yoni Levy of Channel 12 in Tel Aviv. And I'm Jonathan Friedland of The Guardian in London. And we are Unholy, two Jews on the news from Keshe Podcasts. Hi, Jonathan. Chag Sameh. Oh, it's not quite Chag Sameh. Happy Sukkot to you, Yonit. How are you doing? Fine. I, I was wondering, in my uh, endless futile quest to find embarrassing pictures of you, any chance there's a sukkah building debacle that has been recorded uh, for the ages? Not, not this year. Aww. In previous years, they, you definitely would have struck gold <laughs> with some of those images. And I'm afraid to confess to you that we didn't build a sukkah this year. And we sort of got out of the habit uh, a few a, a few years back. And certainly in the pandemic period, it hasn't happened so I apologise. You could have pictures of me getting increasingly infuriated with my neighbours as they build their Sukkot. Um, and for some reason, they've decided that the time, the hour for construction work is midnight to 1am. That, that is sense. the optimal time. I'm sure there's a halachic reason for it. For my ultra-Orthodox neighbours begin to get the drills and the saws out in the early hours of the morning. And this has now become a kind of additional... Uh, festive uh, custom that they honour with great <laughs> diligence. Every year, drilling, screw guns, hucking and banging, as my um, grandparents would have put it, happens every year. So you could have had, you could have a picture of that. I, oh, good. Uh, finally, something to, to go on. I, I can tell you, by the way, that I did not uh, build my sukkah. If I had attempted to do that, it would probably look like a ridiculous dinosaur that never survived. Um, so I did pay good money for someone to do it for me. Um, but oh, nice. uh, I did. Is that halacha uh, approved? I hope it is. But no, um, that's fine. In fact, the neighbors actually do hire people to do it. So that's so that why explains the I'm midnight, able, I guess. That explains the midnight because they were so overrun with customers this year that the only way they could do it is they booked in like the night shift. Um, otherwise, I wouldn't be, you know, even though I think the chances of them listening to Unholy are <laughs> minimal, I wouldn't be risking that because I'm not talking bad mouthing them. It's the people who are doing the work. Uh, but that's interesting that you do that. So is there a Channel 12 sukkah? There is a Channel 12 sukkah. Um, oh. And this week that I spent in quarantine with my uh children made me think of how great Sukkot can be. You can just run away to your Sukkot and sit there uh, for a while. But, you know, I mean, I think uh, we should say that what you're supposed to do is cram as many guests in the Sukkot as possible. That's not very COVID um, friendly. friendly, but that is the uh, the thing to do. Definitely. The Hang on. People are going to be worried, though, that you're quarantining. Everyone's OK. Everyone's OK. Everyone's OK. Yeah, I should have I should have start, led with that. Um, everyone's okay, but yes. You know, in a Jewish podcast, you have to say at the beginning, <laughs> right? You have to say, don't worry, but I, this has happened. Um, That's how you don't do worry, it. but worry. It's a Jewish podcast. You have to worry. Well, there's the um, Jewish, there's the, the, my favorite one is the Jewish telegram, of course, which is start worrying details <laughs> later. Exactly. You know? um, and, but you have to say that in the, in the situation we are in this country, uh, COVID related, and the fact that schools are completely open, and you have right now about 150,000 quarantine students out of about a million. You feel like it's kind of a Russian roulette that you send 3D children out and you know that at some point or another, you're going to have yeah. to be quarantined. Um, so yeah. that, that's what, what it looks like right now. No, I mean, uh, it's, it's getting slightly alarming. We're all in a bit of denial about that here too, I think. But we will, um, we'll have to come on to that in 
in a future week because this is our festive Exactly, I was going to say, we're edition. trying to this is us in a festive mood. It's very important. This is our uh, Sukkot. We have to be festive and cheery. And we are helped in that effort because we have a very cool and very special guest. Indeed. And we have, uh, as you say, a special guest in our podcast Sukkah today. So we say a big hello to Kara Swisher, who is a very cool and very special guest and was described by New York magazine as the most feared and also the most well-liked journalist in Silicon Valley. I would say, uh, Kara, that you are basically the the number one and most influential tech journalist in the world. But to pull off most feared and most well-liked, that's quite a trick. I'm not so sure I'm so well-liked anymore. I think well-liked has ended. (laughs) That was several years ago. It's it's a profile piece from 2014. Yeah, yeah so. I think they're not so happy because a lot of the stuff I've been criticizing tech for has now come to pass, uh, including the January 6th event, which is not com- not at all to blame by tech, but tech helped facilitate it. And I spent a lot of time talking to legislators and or at legislators and others about the implications of these inventions. And I think they've been listening suddenly in the last couple of years. Okay, well, that's interesting. I was going to say to listeners that you and I go back near, uh, quite a long while mm-hmm. ago. Uh, yes. go, we were both reporters, me very briefly, at the Washington Post in the 1990s, mm-hmm. in the kind of Jurassic era, before there was all this tech stuff. What's really interesting to me is that tech was kind of tech as a distinct field, probably when you started. And I was thinking about your podcast, The Pivot, and how that over time has become more and more political, more intertwined with politics. And that's because tech itself has kind of changed in some way. Yeah, we we end up talking a lot about politics, whether it's the FTC or, or, uh, you know, Marguerite Vestager there in Europe or anywhere else. So we it it tends to right now, a lot of what's happening um, has to do with politics because of the power of the tech companies, whether it's something like Bitcoin or cryptocurrency, whether it's hacking, you know, there's got to be legislative interest in a lot of these areas, cars, um, healthcare, and things like that. So tech has overtaken everything in the world, essentially. And when when I first started, it was a small sidelight. You know, these were not rich people. This was not big companies. And mostly tech people thought of was uh, chips, you know, chips and and things like that. But it's, it's now enveloped everything from commerce to communications to entertainment to healthcare to finance to everything. Yeah, it seems like to the outside observer that the, one of your sp- strong points has always been, you know, not fawning over these companies and their success and the money, no. but rather observing it with a really healthy dose of of, of skepticism and, and really examining the power structures and the, and the social responsibility or lack thereof. Uh, and I wonder how hard is that mm-hmm. to do over uh, these years? And and is there any company that you look at and say they're actually getting high marks in the in the social responsibility uh, category? Well, some of them, it depends on the company, right? So I think all of them, I don't, first of all, I don't think one of the things that's interesting, there's just been a recent series called the Facebook Files uh, in uh, in the journal. And one of the responses from Nick Clegg, who's from Britain, uh, who I think I'm sure Jonathan knows, um, has been, uh, has been, we're not bad people. How dare you call us bad people? No one's saying, uh, you know, they are. That wasn't what they were saying. It's their products are dangerous and need regulation. Their products are problematic in all kinds of ways. And that's what the sweep of the journal articles sort of uh, is on the shoulders of reporting that had happened previously with more documents. Um, and so I think one of the things that I try to do is I don't consider these necessarily, not some of them, some of them are not good people, 
bad people, but some of their products and the implications. And so I don't think it's hard at all. It's, it's like, what are the consequences of what you made? Um, and I think that's where I focus in on. And they don't feel very comfortable because they have to bring it back to the personal as if they're in some, you know, movie about a chemical company that's poisoning children. Well, they're poisoning someone, but it's not, and, and, and maybe they didn't understand the implications or the consequences. And that's where I like to focus is pay attention to what you've made and the implications of what you've made. Um, and the problem with these people is that they started off very young and very celebrated. They get licked up and down all day. They're extraordinarily wealthy, and therefore they think everything they do is correct without understanding the responsibility they also hold for the immense power they have in the world. Uh, you wrote your piece recently about the, the endless Facebook apology, as if this has gone yeah. on and on and on. And that interests me because in 2016, it all did explode about their involvement in the US election and what sure. they'd done in terms of Donald Trump. And the, the idea that five years later, you're still having to write to say these companies are yeah. potentially, their products are dangerous, etc. Five years has passed. Why has this not been addressed, solved, dealt with? Well, because the regulators in the U.S. at least, you know, you've had more luck in Europe and elsewhere in the world. But in, in the U.S., there's almost no regulation on technology companies or any of these companies. Now, they're starting to step in in cryptocurrency, which is a relatively new area, which does need regulation, obviously. Although the people who run cryptocurrency don't think so. But too bad. Um, you know, or cars. That's something people feel, governments feel comfortable moving in on and actually throttling back in many ways. The tech companies have had none, none. Like people are like, we shouldn't have regulation against tech. I said, we don't have any. There's none. There's none. There's not. There's maybe some minor data laws. There's, uh, but what the laws that exist protect it, Section 230, um, First Amendment, things like that. They're very well protected by laws. They're not hindered by them in any way. So again, it begs the question, I mean, even lay People Why? like, right. I mean, I'm not tech savvy. I understand that there's a line between Russian propaganda 2016 and anti-vaxxers 2021. And you ask yourself, why has this not uh, been regulated? I mean, you had a, con a very interesting conversation on Sway on your podcast. Uh, you spoke with uh, uh, Dave Edgars and he said something about, you know, no one's going to come for Amazon because at the end of the day, people like low they prices. Like so maybe that's yeah. true also to Facebook. You say, you know, I know that my data is, is, you know, probably in jeopardy in my privacy, but it's so convenient that I don't understand well, the, yeah. the problem. Well, that's how, you know, the devil shows up, right? It doesn't show up ugly. It shows up convenient. It's like, wow, I can get a, you know, I get mayonnaise to your home with you just thinking about it. I want a sandwich. Oh, it's there. You know, a lot of people feel, for example, if Amazon had handed, had handled the, uh, the vaccine rollout, we would have, everybody would have been vaccinated. They're incredibly efficient. They do a great job. Great customer service. They're rich. They go to space, you know, like they're so successful. And so I think people have a hard time doing anything because it's all free. You know, it's all free. It's all easy. And what I always say to them is, you know what, what do you, what do you get in your trade with these companies? Um, you get free maps, you get your stuff delivered really quickly. You get, um, I don't know, a, a calendar, you get dating and they get everything else. They get all the money, they get all the control, they get all the data, your data, and they get to know everything about you. Non-government agencies, Nobody's comfortable with government agencies knowing all this stuff about you. These are private companies that know everything about you, information you give up willingly and not so willingly. And you are okay with that trade? 
you're all a bunch of cheap dates, you know? Here's some flowers. Now I'm going to fuck with you. Like, that's how I look at it. Like, I don't know. I want more from them, and I want regulators. However problematic regulators are, they're elected. You know, you can like or not like Benjamin Netanyahu or Boris Johnson or Donald Trump, but they were elected. And you can get rid of them. Two two out of the three. (laughs) Um, tempted to say two down, one to go, but I'll I'll avoid that. But just tell, tell, because I think Bojo's with you for a long time. I think so too, actually. Um, (laughs) We are, the focus of this podcast is Israel, the wider Jewish world and things, but there's, there's a quite a fit there because Israel has, you know, prides itself on being this startup nation, tech, high tech is a big part of that. I mean, do you have, is there a kind of secret source in what makes a place, you know, you're in Silicon Valley, I think we're talking to you yes. in Silicon Valley now, there is Silicon, you know, Fen in Cambridge in England, Sil- you know, of, yeah. Silicon Glen in Scotland, there's all these areas, the ones that actually work, what what is the secret source that makes a place particularly susceptible or conducive, hospitable for a successful tech industry? Well, you know, there's a lot of books written about this, what creates an innovative society and what ends an innovative society, right? And so that's what, that's interesting. They all, there's been millions of these over history, um, and it doesn't necessarily have to be technology. There's, it, it, they all share the same thing, tolerance, willingness to criticize, willingness to, 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 to change a government that's, that's flexible, absolutely, no question, and helps them, puts in research uh, money and things like that. Um, what ends them are... Uh, you know, wealth, expensive, closed-mindedness, um, that, that places run out of ideas and people move along. Um, I don't, you know, Israel is really interesting because obviously a lot of the tech comes out of the military there. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and military intelligence. The military. Yeah, and cybersecurity. Right, exactly. And but, you know, I think it's just, I think there is a, an element of physicality to an analog location based on something like Hollywood. But now it's changed. That's changed rather dramatically in the pandemic. So it'll be interesting to see what happens now that most of these tech companies are going almost fully remote. I mean, I don't, I don't, although Google just bought up a giant building in New York, but I think that it'll be interesting to see what happens if there is going to be a place or if we're going to be able to find talent across the world, you know, or be able to innovate post-pandemic. You know, the interesting, obviously, the term Israelis use this past year is unicorns, these companies, the, the, the yeah. startup companies that the value of over the 1 billion. Israel had 37 of those in 2020, which is really a staggering yeah. number when you think of it how is. small a country we are. I went through the list of just the recent ones, and the amazing thing is there is one female founder of one oh, yeah, really? company. Amazing. And I was wondering how, amazing. you know, how that, I, I don't know what the view from Silicon Valley is, but obviously I'm sure there are more. Same thing. It's the same? That's so depressing. Yeah, oh yeah, the numbers are really down. Because, you know, men are smarter. I don't know if you know that, especially <laughs> white men. They're better than everybody else. Sorry, John, <laughs> sorry. Um, you know, it's uh, it's because they get funded in that level. Um, they get encouraged. Um, there's a lot of, you know, if someone breaks up, goes goes to a company and opens another, they bring along their friends. Mm. Um, it's, it's, I always, I, the thing I say from the beginning, and it's been a long time thing, is um, they think it's a meritocracy and it's a meritocracy. Um, they see what they see and then they feel comfortable with that. Um, you can see it everywhere, you know, on boards of companies. There's no way that, that you know, years ago I wrote a lead about Twitter, which at the time was knocking itself into a wall on a regular basis, like running itself directly into a wall. And they had 10 white men of the same exact age, type, everything else on the board. 
And I always thought that was a problem because I think diversity brings a lot of interesting innovation. And there's lots of studies about this. I'm not, you know, it's, I'm not trying to virtue signal you. It's just very clear that that's the case. And I wrote a lead that I think I should have retired right after I said on the board of Twitter, which has three Peters and a dick, um, <laughs> there's a problem with diversity. Oh, that's great. And um, it was. And they laughed about it and then started, called me back and said, you know, we have standards. And I said, well, what, where were the standards when you had this shitty board that was doing all these stupid things? Like, you only mentioned standards when it comes to women and people of color. So I don't think it does a service to these companies to be like this. But it, it just is. This is what it is. And it isn't because, you know, if you said it, it's just a group of people are not just good at something and nobody else is. It's the lack of opportunity. It's the lack of um, access to capital. And it's the lack of belief um, by the powers that be in allowing people to experiment with all kinds of things. In terms of that access to capital thing, the the Israeli startups that Yonit was referring to do well out of that. And partly it's yeah. Americans who invest in them. Do you have a yes, sense of what it is so. that might make an American investor think, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll bet on that Israeli startup? Well, it's a history, a long history, right? Everyone pattern matches, and they have very big presence and knowledge in Israel. A lot of Israeli invest, um, entrepreneurs have come to Silicon Valley. It's a very tight, you know, it's a very tight circle. Uh, so I think it, it makes perfect sense. I mean, you have some very prominent Israeli investors, um, but most of the American investors understand there are certain areas where there's a, it's fertile to come there and try to find entrepreneurs. Um, obviously, this, there's so much money right now that it's really quite easy to get investments. Um, and so, and there's obviously the valuations are going up again. So if there's so much money poured into the system in this country, really just just uh, huge amounts, what does it do? How sustainable is it? Are we looking at a bubble? I mean, just in Israel, the fact that there are thousands of, you know, newly rich techies around changes society. But is it, obviously no, a lot is, of these companies not, are overvalued. This isn't fresh and new for yeah. Israel. This has happened over and over again. You know, think about it. If you look around the world, where do you put your money, right? I mean, I think there's, a, there's the world is awash in cash right now, especially the tech companies are triple in size in terms of valuation. Wow. Now, they didn't do three times the innovation over the past year. Trust me. They got, they got an open market that they were able to take advantage of with people at home. And then who suffered? Retail, commerce, in-person in, in commerce office buildings. I mean, look what's happening in China right now with this um, this, this uh, controversial company, this real estate company, I think it's mm -hmm. Everglade or whatever it's called. In any case, there's all this money and a lot of, uh, and not a lot of places to go. And so it naturally goes to tech, which always seems to do well. And there's, there's some very clear trends headed towards us that have been proven by the pandemic that everything is going to be digitized. And to invest in it makes sense. And there's big areas like transportation, healthcare, um, entertainment, um, especially, which has had the world's biggest experiment because of the pandemic. Now people have moved that way. Um, and now companies are thinking whether they should be hybrid at the very least, um, but remote possibly. Commerce has moved. Amazon has rushed into the breach as, as, as other online retailers. Um, you know, streaming companies now dominate. Movie theaters are in struggling. Um, so why not put the money there? It makes sense. So when, when I hear you say all that, and it's obviously all correct, I just don't know how in a battle of accountability where you have this digital colossus 
many-headed yeah. with huge resources and wealth and, yeah. and all the trends in terms of post-pandemic going in their direction. How the puny little politicians, and I would even include the President of the United States in this, can I even agree. hope to keep up with them, especially because if they do move, I mean, you mentioned the British case, you know, where the Amazon pay almost nothing in tax. They just say, OK, we'll go somewhere else. Mm -hmm. How this fight to me seems so uh, it seems biblically uneven. Well, this fight. well, you know, we did have big oil here. We had big, big telcos. We had big train companies. You know, this is not something new and fresh. To the United States is these companies taking over things. Um, and the U.S. government still is very powerful. Let me just say, I, I wouldn't bet against uh, any government, really, any relatively stable government. And I use that in quotes, relatively stable um, for the United States. But, you know, uh, President Biden has put in place some very uh, strong anti-tech regulators, I would say. I wouldn't say anti-tech, tech-critical regulators. Um, Lena Khan at the FTC. Uh, John Cantor is now under uh, uh, at the Justice Department in antitrust. Um, you have Tim Wu at the White House, and you have a president very much interested and a bunch of legislators, by the way, on both sides for very different reasons, obviously. Um, the, the right wing thinks they're being censored when they never shut up for a minute, um, which is always my favorite thing. I'm always like, Josh Hawley, you never shut up. Marjorie Taylor Greene. We wish you would shut up. We wish someone would stop you talking. Um, but but she doesn't, you know, um, which is, you know, a strength of our country, whatever. I find her abhorrent, but nonetheless, she does get to talk. And I think you'll see uh, some nonpartisan uh, legislation around privacy, around data, the reform of Section 230. I mean, I think one of the biggest problems is... Um, you know, every other industry gets reined in in several different ways. One is by taxation, uh, another, which is a great way to sort of slow people down. Another is by regulation. Um, but uh, one of the best ways to rein companies in, and I hate to say this, is, is, is legal um, lawsuits. Uh, people can be sued, sue the bastard kind of thing. And medical device people can be sued. Uh, uh, financial companies can be sued. Um, real estate companies can be sued. Guess who can't be sued? Tech companies. Well, that might have to be rethought in a significant way. Not completely, not getting rid of Section 230, but right now they have broad immunity. And so Facebook has its CEO who is unfireable and unaccountable, who cannot be sued. What is that? I mean, come on. Like, come on. Like, at some point, there has to be uh, criminal implications. There has to be civil implications for some of their behavior, and there isn't any. So if we have this conversation in four years... Will it be a different one or will we still be asking the question, why is there no regulation? I think it's difficult. Well, Facebook has more PR people. You know, FTC was just hiring, I don't know, 200 lawyers. I was like, try 2,500 you need. Um, Facebook has more PR people. I think there's seven PR people covering me right now, right? Wow. I don't know. Um, no, there's not. I'm teasing. Um, there's just, I was so ready uh, to believe just, that. I was, I was, no, I was, I was, I was completely just ready seven? to believe no, they just What do you mean? They, they don't talk to me at all, which is, it doesn't matter. I don't care. I still shoot from my little, little area. I think they have hundreds. They have more PR people than the FTC has staff um, and the Justice Department. They can't, you know, and all of them do, by the way. And they have enormous money, lobbyists and things like that. That said, I think the jig is up on, on, with the public. Um, I think people, the, the trends are showing, um, just like a lot of things, um, the damage that has been done. I think this recent uh, bunch of, I think people inside these companies right now, guess who's throwing all these documents over the wall? 
employees of Facebook. Yeah. That's what's happened here. This teen girls thing, this is not a good look for a company. It's just not. This is the effect of the Instagram, Instagram on the self-image yeah. of, yeah. of younger. Well, of course we knew that. And it's been, you know, I, I don't know what I would do if I was Facebook, but I would think hard about what they're doing. But, and I think people inside there are thinking hard. But if the jig is up it. in terms of even the public now realizing these things are dangerous, but goes back to the Dave Eggers point, it's just too convenient to give up. What leverage, what sort of power in that arrangement does the, does the user have? Because in the end, they don't walk away. They're not going to go You're off right. Twitter or Facebook. They have to use these products. There's no way you can do your job today without using right. any of these products. So, you don't have you don't have to use Twitter, Twitter, Jonathan. You don't. It's just, I'm sorry. <laughs> I think you love it, right? I feel that you love it. Um, <laughs> it's addictive. I think addictive. looking into the addictive nature of these things is important. Um, you have power to um, not use things. You have power to push for legislation. I think there's two areas that I think one is liability. Two is taxation. Sorry, three. And three is privacy laws and make them pay for the data they're taking from you. Make them pay. And, and then see their, their businesses aren't quite as profitable once they have to pay for the damage they do. But you think we should get Same off thing. these platforms in terms of our own mental health? I, a little bit more. I think they should make it possible. I think it's, it's interesting. Apple just uh, said it was going to use the devices to help study cognition and depression. Oh, my God, the, the devices that make us depressed are going to help us not be depressed. Okay, got it. Check. Um, and I think Apple's probably the best among them, right, among all these companies in terms of that. But the fact of the matter is they feed off of our data. They feed off of our movements. They feed off of our consumption. And they have to be made to pay for that in a way that's significant. It's happened to opiates companies. That said, what's interesting is tech entrepreneurs and money people of money are the ones paying for all this research into psychotropic drugs which actually look like a solution to opiate addiction which is kind of good i'm like thank you for the lsd everybody whatever whatever they happen to come up with but um i think eventually the, the government will will rein these companies in i think they've been lax about it um and some of the stuff they're doing i think is really interesting the space travel some people think it's overhyped. I think it's important. I'm ignoring Jeff Bezos' ridiculous roller coaster ride to the, to the edge of the atmosphere. Um, but I think some of the stuff Elon Musk is doing is interesting um, and important. Um, oh, not just ego some, trip, something important? What's the important bit? Oh, e Elon Musk, the stuff with space, how to, how to these rockets, it's very important. Uh, he's not, you didn't know, if you noticed, he did not go up in a rocket ship, mm. you know? He doesn't need to do that. He's, he's more interested in going to Mars and never coming back. <laughs> but some of the stuff around, um, you know, the car stuff is interesting. Some of the stuff around climate change. I really hope that tech will be used to sort of, you know, help and mitigate the issues around climate change. Because in the end, that, that's all that matters, right? None of this is going to matter if we burn ourselves up, right? So um, I think it'll be interesting to see who among these technologists or who emerges across the world to come up with innovative solutions to climate change, which is, of course, the existential crisis of our time. So that, that can be the redemption. I, uh... Or someone else. Or someone else. <laughs> I think they're wasting their time sticking with each other. One of the things I always think about is there's a kid in, I don't know, Somalia or a girl who has a cure for cancer in her head, right? It's always, it isn't just going to be born by computers. It's going to be born by human innovation. And 
the fact that they don't let this talent emerge or they just they hinder it is ridiculous. It's such a disservice to humanity. We I we can't let you go without asking you okay. since uh you know, we talked about Sway, but we also are big fans of, of Pivot. Pivot. And, uh, yeah. you know, you, you co-host with Scott, uh, Professor Scott Galloway. Galloway, who is half Jewish. Yeah. And I co-host yes, with Jonathan Friedland, who is fully Jewish. And I have right. to have your tips on a pod distance relationship. Oh, pod distance relationship. <laughs> you know what? Toleration, I say. Every day, Scott says, he just this morning, like I announced I was having another baby. Um, and, uh, and Scott, of course, immediately claimed paternity, uh, and was highly offensive with a series of extraordinarily rude comments about lesbians and sperm and et cetera. And I just, you know what? People get super pre-offended. My wife, who is Jewish, um, says she's coined the term pre-offended, um, where people now today, everybody gets sort of up in arms. And I don't say this is about cancel culture because I think those people who do all the hot take hacks on cancel culture are ridiculous um some people should have i call it consequence culture when you do something shitty you should pay the price sorry that's the way it is and i don't think people are hindered from talking i think that's overblown and used as a as a way to make money for themselves um in any case um i i'm tolerant of when he wants to say something that's maybe a little bit problematic uh, i think tolerance tolerance and understanding um and a sense of humor right yeah. like I think those are my you know. middle names you'll need. I mean, <laughs> the tolerance yeah. I have to extend. You really. have to be like, oh, you're kidding me. <laughs> and liking the, and, and being able to tolerate dissent and disagreement. I think that, that of course, has changed rather significantly because of the internet. Everyone is instantly angry about or in the rage. But guess what? It's designed to make you upset. It's designed to put you in a rage. And if you resist it, you have a much better relationship. Um, and I don't mean anti-vaxxers because they can go fuck themselves you know they can really truly go fuck themselves but um but i think it's more um tolerant of people's different opinions and willingness to listen to them if they're reasonable if they're uh, not fact-based and dangerous no you can slap them until next you know sunday but i think that's that's what i with scott humor and tolerance i would say I wanted to ask one last thing before we let you go. I know we, sure. we've said that was the last one, but just sure. because you're so fluent on on what needs to be done, this is a question mm-hmm. I often ask of fellow journalists who are very good at diagnosing the problems. At what point do you feel like you want to get out from behind the, you know, commentary box and onto the mm-hmm. pitch, really? And is well, that, I've, that I've created lots of companies, Jonathan. Yeah. And I left. I left the company. I left the journal to start on my own thing. We just happened to sell it. So we've been doing this sort of. Everyone's like, "Oh, Substack is so entrepreneurial." And we were doing it twenty years ago. Walt and I left and did our own conferences. We did our own. Po- I started podcast six years, seven years ago, because yeah. uh, I thought it was innovative. Anyway, no, I, what I had in know, mind was whether this, this talk yeah. about regulation, whether you would seek political oh. office is what I was wondering. Oh, my God. I think Facebook would lose its ever-loving <laughs> mind. And no, I think I have, I have I, I, I thought about running for office, but I think I'm more effective here. I think I have a better, uh, a better place. Uh, I spent a lot of time talking with Amy Klobuchar and Mark Warner, and, and I've interviewed, you know, um, Lena Khan and Tim Wu. And so I think I have more, uh, more power making connections for people. And understanding, and then not that pushing back. Like I think I did more good when Nick Clegg released his ridiculous latest. It wasn't even. I'm sorry. I'm not sure what it was. It was a lot of words typed. Uh, that's all I could think of what it was. Um, I think I have a lot more impact 
by doing that. I just do. I just think it's, it's like impact, like having families or being gay. I think about that a lot. Um, I have more impact having been married and having a lot of children and living our lives in a very proud and open way. And, you know, I think at this point I was joking with, with Scott, only, uh, only lesbians and evangelicals are having this many children, um, <laughs> except ours are vaccinated. Um, and, um, and that's how you do it. You know, you just live every day. And so I think I probably have more impact doing that. Thank you, Kara Swisher, for being in the Unholy Sukkah. We've loved it. Thank you very I much. I love Unholy. So, Where, so, can I ask you a question? Tonight. Sure. Why did you call it Unholy? I mean, I know that series on Netflix. Was, um, I love Netflix, by the way. There's a company I think. Is we we were there company. before they were, actually, the series. Oh, on, were you? On, on, okay. On Netflix. But the we called it that because Yonit is sitting in what it's is catchy. sometimes called the, the Holy Land. But we're a sort yes. of irreverent take there. on that, I think. Well, oh, Ronnie, okay. what's, your, I like that. what's your answer to the... Well, I, the, answer, the honest answer is I wanted to call it Two Jews on the News, but Jonathan won ah. with, his, with his title. <laughs> two Jews on the News. Well, but uh, unholy, unholy was unholy a better one. choice. Yeah, okay. We yeah. thought so too yeah. eventually. Yeah, so. it's a great name. I really like it. It's a great name. I hope to get to Israel soon. I love Israel. I love coming there. Um, and I, I really enjoy talking to all the entrepreneurs there. And, and London. Not as entrepreneurial, no, Jonathan. No, very much, like. very much not. Uh, we'll, we would love to have you on again. Thank you so much, Kara. Anytime. Thank you. So that was a very interesting conversation. I, I she learned knows a lot. Everything. <laughs> she knows everything about tech world and the world, I would say. Indeed. Um, we want to uh, go to our traditional chutzpah and mensch, maybe in the spirit of Sukkot, it's the people we will let in our sukkah and the people who will stay outside. And not I like that. So who gets on the unholy guest list and who <laughs> is outside the velvet rope? Um, I think that's quite cool. Um, OK, well, I'm going to link mine, actually, because I think there was a nice little moment at the Emmys uh, where there was, I think, simultaneously a little act of chutzpah and a little act of mensch. And that is that, especially if you're the organisers uh, of the Emmys, you'd be delighted that one Jewish actor Brett Goldstein, who's a uh, big actor in the hit comedy Ted Lasso, he won Best Supporting Actor. Uh, he um, delivered a very short and brief and to the point uh, speech, which included him swearing, which is uh, in the spirit of his character. So he gets a chutz, uh, he gets a mention award because the one thing you like if you're in the audience and also if you're organising any kind of event is the short speech. Um, but simultaneously, uh, at the very same event at the Emmys, a very long speech came from the director of the Queen's Gambit show, which I absolutely loved, by the way, the director Scott Frank, who uh, brought down the wrath of the TV gods on him because he ignored <laughs> repeated signals to just end already and wrap it up. I think they struck up the music three times, but instead he never just went on Never and want on them to strike up the music on. three times. You yep. never want that to happen. So he um, gets a little bit of a chutzpah for stretching the patience of the Emmy producers and uh, perhaps even the TV audience. That reminds me of uh, my editor in the earpiece uh, while I anchor the news. You always get, when you want, he wants me to finish up what I'm, wrap up what I'm saying. It's a toda, toda. And the third one is screaming, toda. So that is what the three times <laughs> music thing was. Um, that's anyway, so I, I'm going to link my mention of chutzpah as well, because it's an uh, interviewer and an interviewee, and I think one of them, at least the interviewer, Savannah Guthrie, uh, gets the Mensch Award, and the interviewee 
uh, gets, uh, and that is your Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, I think he gets the Chutzpah ah. Award. What, what happened in this interview was very interesting because she actually got him uh, to admit to the number of children he has, which is sort of something that is, if I'm not mistaken, uh, eluded the British press for a very long time. And she kind of did it very elegantly. She said, well, you have six kids. And he says, yes, uh, which uh, made uh, a lot of headlines in uh, the UK as well. Yeah, it's an amazing thing to admit, but we have not known for certain amazing. Uh, the the actual number for quite a long time because he has had a very colourful marital and extramarital life. And it has been quite tricky to keep up um, with his. I love uh, I love the word "colorful" that you're using as an understatement there, Jonathan. Yeah, that's a little <laughs> bit of British understatement. Um, he has had a aerobic um, uh, romantic life and um, and colorful. So yeah, it's been hard to keep up. And uh, Samantha Guthrie, absolutely. And what was beautiful about it was it wasn't clear to me whether this was a really clever slash devious bit of interviewing or whether she just in a really kind of open-faced quite genuine way just sort of said right you know how many do you remind me how many do you have or what what have she said you have six right and he went yes I think you know so it's was it just naivety or was it well you're the tv i I think she did naivety or a ploy i think it was it was uh, completely deliberate uh i have to say that when he says he changes a lot of nappies or diapers uh, didn't believe that part so much but uh, second only to favorite uh, Savannah Guthrie clip of all time. I'm sure you remember this when she interviewed President Trump before the elections. And she asked him about a piece of, I don't know, disinformation he was tweeting about. And he tried to explain why he was doing it. And then she just said, but you're not somebody's crazy uncle. You're the president, uh, which I think is her best line. They're not mutually exclusive, by the way. They can no, they're not. That's, um, that's the problem. <laughs> America's craziest uncle did become its president. Um, no, that's great. So okay. she's, had two, she's had two very good TV moments. So she is ushered in to the unholy sukkah and given a seat at the table, uh, a pride of place for that bit of TV interviewing. Indeed. While outside, um, can... um, the producer of Queen's Gambit and the Prime Minister can shiver in the autumnal <laughs> cold because they are on the outside. It's uh, Israel, Jonathan. It's not autumnal cold. It's very, very warm. Just saying. Good weather. Mm. Still good weather. Um, yeah, I hope you're jealous. You. If we're doing, I remember when we did mon- mention, besides that kind of gray area between chutzpah and manj, that we just want to mention something. Can I do that this week? You Will can. You go allow on, please it? mention. Remember last week we were on the topic of books. So the book Peril came out. It's about Trump's final days in office. Legendary journalist Bob Woodward wrote it uh, with veteran Washington uh, reporter columnist uh, Robert Costa. And it claims, among other things, that General Mark Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Uh, was very concerned that Trump might go rogue after the January 6th attack on the Capitol and took secret action to protect nuclear weapons. He basically uh, summoned his senior officers to say, if you get the call, you have to involve me. Now, this is very, I would say, eerily similar to my friend Sam Bourne's book, (laughs) a.k.a. Jonathan Friedland, who wrote a book four years ago called... To kill the president. And the yes. very first chapter begins, if I'm not mistaken, I read this a while back, but with the chief of staff and the secretary of defense trying to block the president from launching a nuclear attack on North Korea. So you knew before. People need to read your books to know what will happen in the Bob Woodward books in years to come. I love that. No, it begins with fiction from Sam Bourne and ends with the real life account by Bob Woodward. <laughs> I'm very happy with that contractual arrangement. I mean, it was, it did actually almost have a give me a little sort of tingle 
when I saw this story because it is a little bit uncanny. That was absolutely the opening episode of that book that was based on a you know unnamed president who mm-hmm. did have some crazy <laughs> uncle attributes and was uncannily like the crazy uncle. But I wrote it before I finished that draft and submitted it to the publisher before Donald Trump took his oath of office. I had to write that at absolutely breakneck speed to meet the deadline. And so I wrote it, started writing more or less uh, as the results came in in November 2016 and wow. handed it in something like January the 19th or something um, uh, of 2017. So I had no idea of what kind of president he would be. I just all I had was what kind of person he was to go on. And so my uh, hypothetical was, what if he's so crazy that the people around him have to absolutely sort of stay his hand to prevent him pressing the nuclear button? And then four years later, you read that that is more or less what happened um, with the the chief of staff. So it is pretty incredible. I mean, there were a few other things in there that were a little bit weird and that I put in the book. And I did for a while get tweets and things from people who were reading it saying, you know, will you do my lottery numbers this week? Because (laughs) things I'd put in the book then did happen. So we are winding up our um, special Sukkot episode. We are. Um, We are retracting the roof. Yes. And we are covering up our sukkah. um, And uh, and we should mention that if you love this podcast, we hope you do. Please do recommend it to your friends and you can review it uh, online, uh, wherever you get your podcast. We would always be grateful. And we're at Instagram as two Jews. No digits or numbers just the words two jews on instagram oh look at you so instagram savvy we will also <laughs> say thank you to uh rom Atik, of course to our executive producer uh, leor friedman uh and tell you that we are also on the forward one of the most uh, influential uh, jewish publications in the world and on ll flights if we ever ever get on one of them jonathan uh we can listen to ourselves <laughs> And a big thanks, obviously, to Kara Swisher for joining us in our Indeed. And we shall meet next week.